Okay, I've dispensed with that uh, thing you stick on your head. It crackles too much and doesn't work, so you'll have to put up with me with this. During the week, I've had occasion to speak to a number of people who don't share my faith, and we've been talking at various times, uh, what, what are you doing this week? And I've got round to saying, well, actually, I'm preaching in church on Sunday. Oh, that's interesting, they, they said. And, and um, what are you preaching about? I said, oh, the book of Exodus. Oh, that's funny, they said. That, that's that stuff about Charlton Heston holding up his stick and everyone goes through the, the sea. And I said, yeah, there's, there's that in it. But it is an interesting question when you look at it from outside the Christian faith. You know, what does these stories or this story about the people of Israel who were captive in Egypt you know, over, well over a thousand years ago. What does that have to say to us today? And it, it's been eternally gratifying that both Rob and those of you who've led us in understanding the book of Exodus have, have found all kinds of stuff in there that is relevant for us today. I'm very grateful when I first became a Christian, and I'll chat about that a bit later, that I was taught the good old script union method. And the script union method has two aspects to it. First of all, you have to ask the question, well, what does the Bible passage mean in its context? What was the person who wrote the passage trying to say to the people of that day? And then once you've understood that, you then ask the question, okay, given that and given the cultural context and given it was written in, to a pre-scientific people, what is its relevance and what has it got to say to us today? And that's really the, the starting point in, in, um, in, the book of, in the chapters of Exodus that I want to look at. Um, I've, I've actually uh, doing two sermons. I'm doing next week because Rob needs another uh, Sunday off. And, and when I looked at what he'd given me next week, it's, it's the, blood and the, the blood and the frogs. You know, how do you, how do you, what do you get out of the blood and the frogs? But that's next week. So let's look at this week. I'm trying to do a good Baptist sermon, three points, so let's look at the first passage. This is Exodus 6, 6 2 to 8. And you've got it up, you got it up there, I think? Or maybe I'm supposed to. Can you click it on for Moses? I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. Remember that word, covenant to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Right, good, we're there. I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty with mighty acts of judgment i will will take also my own people and i will be your god then you will know that i am the lord your god who brought you out from under the yoke of the egyptians and i will bring you to the land i swore with uplifted hand to give to abraham to isaac and to jacob and i will give it to you as a possession for i am the lord and the people of Israel were used to being reminded about the special relationship that they had with God. And that's the first lesson. There are, there are lots of covenants. Can we have the next slide, thanks? There are lots of covenants in the Old Testament. There are actually five important ones. Um, there's 
there's God's redemptive plan. There's the covenant with Noah. There's the covenant with Abraham. There's the covenant with Moses. There's the covenant with David. And then, of course, in the New Testament, there's the covenant in Jesus' blood. And that's the one that we are inheritors of. A covenant is, if it's nothing else, it's a solemn promise. And Jesus has made a solemn promise to us. And when we first started to follow him in our Christian lives, we made a solemn promise to him. Just as those of us who are married made a solemn promise to our marriage partner. It's a very solemn thing. And I think the first thing that we need to remember from this, this covenant passage is, do we, what are we doing? Do we remember? Next, next slide, thanks. Do we remember our first promise when we first decided to follow Jesus, to follow God, to be interested in God? Do we go back to it and refresh our memory as the Israelites were being um, encouraged to do? I, re I can tell you a little bit about my journey. My journey began, as many of you know, on a small South Taranaki farm. I grew up with my father, who was a, a, a Presbyterian elder for as many years as I can remember. He never spoke about his faith, but we all went off to church. And So by the time I got to boarding school, I'd just about had enough of, um, of, of the Christian faith, rural Presbyterian style. And we sat upstairs in St. Andrew's Church because at boarding school, we were forced to go to church. And we used to um, play chess and read Playboy magazine and, and flick, flick sweets down into the congregation. It wasn't a particularly... Um, you know, a particularly uplifting time for my Christian faith. And yet deep down I knew all along that there was something more to Christianity. And so by the time I got to university, I was in search mode. You know, I was really searching for what God really meant. And largely through um, IVF, TSCF, the organization that Ben heads up in New Zealand, largely through the conferences and through my contact with a man called Duncan Roper, who discipled me and who ran a, a weird Christian community based on Francis Schaeffer's Labrie, where we'd both studied. Largely, my, my Christian, my recommitment to Christianity was a journey over about one and a half to two years. And, and I don't know what yours was like, whether it was a sudden thing or whether it was a, a journey like mine was. It's really important for us to remember our journey, to go back to it to refresh our journey. And the Israelites were being called here to refresh and renew their covenant. And I believe the first point I want to make is that I believe we are called to refresh and renew our covenant with Jesus. Maybe daily if we're going through a, a bad patch. You know, there are, there are two reasons kind of why we lose our covenant. One is because we get lazy, you know, and we just can't be bothered anymore going to church and and thinking about Christ. And the other one is, is kind of more serious. It's, it's because we, we kind of lose heart and we think we're not good enough. You know, we punish ourselves and we think we sin all the time and, and, and God couldn't possibly forgive us. I'm, I'm a great fan of, and some of you will know, particularly you younger people will know the um, young Texas singer Lauren Daigle. And I went to a concert of hers. Steve, uh, Nick, my son, and Sierra, his wife, shouted me, recently to a Lauren Daigle concert and she has a song that some of you will know and the, the, the lyrics goes, go like this I keep voices, fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough every single lie that tells me I will never me measure up am I more than just the sum of every high and every low 
Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. And then she has that wonderful chorus. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong, you say that I am yours. And then she comes back with this wonderful affirmation. And I believe, despite the difficulties that I'm going through, I believe. And she repeats it over and over and over. If you've never heard Lauren Daigle, go home and Google her, her um, song, um, You Say. It's, a, it's a, wonderful, um, a wonderful piece of music, a piece of Christian music, and it has a wonderful message. So my first main point is we need to constantly renew and revise our covenant with Jesus. We need to go back. Sure, we've grown. We've moved on from, the, from our, maybe our childhood commitment, but we need to go back and restore and renew our covenant with Jesus. So that's point number one. Point number two. Next slide. What is it with all these genealogies in the Bible? When, when um, Rob gave me this part, I thought, oh no, the genealogies. What are the genealogies all about? You know, someone begets so-and-so, begets so-and-so, begets so-and-so in the, in the King James Version. And then I looked at it and I thought, why did God put the genealogies in the Bible? You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 says something like, um, All scripture is inspired by God and is suitable for reproof, for teaching, and for training in righteousness. And we're, we're, we're called to read it all. And therefore, if God put it there, it must have a purpose. There must be some reason why the genealogies are there. Some of you are probably into genealogical history. How many of you look up you know, your family tree and don't see many hands. Oh yeah, there's a few of you. It, it, it's quite important. And we can, we can actually trace it very accurately now. And you can even look up your DNA. You know, you can find out how much of you came from Germany and how much from Ireland and how much from, from South Africa and, and so on. It, it's a very real thing. The thing about genealogies is that they are real. They are real pieces of history. And the Jews were among the best genealogies, genealogists, if that's a word, in history. They had all kinds of reasons for, for making sure that their personal records, their personal family histories were recorded. It was to do with inheritance, it was to do with faith, it was to do with money. And sadly, the Nazis knew this during the Second World War. And the reason why they were able to round up so many Jewish families and take them off to the concentration camps was because they had all the written records and they were incredibly accurate about where all the Jewish people lived. So... The question is, if, and, and this, this goes on to the next slide, thanks very much, if the genealogies are real, how come we can decide what's real and what's not? You know, can some people say, oh yeah, well we can maybe accept the genealogies, but we're not into this stuff about the plagues and about, you know, God turning Moses' staff into a snake that gobbled up all the other snakes and, you know, parting the Red Sea, and there's got to be another natural explanation for this. So, but, but the Bible is actually quite simple. The genealogies are in the same chapter as a lot of these other miracles. God doesn't distinguish and say, this is real, but that's not. And why is that? It comes down to whether we have a faith that has a belief in the miraculous, in the supernatural, that is still credible in a secular humanist age, an age that's dominated by a religion of rationalism or secular humanism. And whether we believe that that is, still, that is still credible. 
And it's, for me, it's really important. For people who've been through a rough time, as I did, as many of you know, some years ago, you know, when you, you lose your father and your wife and a, a baby and, and your brother in a few short years, you really do get rather angry with God. And you begin to ask, well, what's going on? And, you know, as a, as a, as a group, we've, we've lost Bromwyn someone really close to us recently and what, what is God doing you know we, we don't understand but, it, but for me what I call the apologetic aspect of my faith is incredibly important and it's one of the reasons why I'm still a Christian one of the, the reason I'm still a Christian is because there's a whole bunch of questions in life you know where did we come from was there a, was there a guiding hand behind the whole of the universe or in fact did we all just evolve randomly from a hydrogen atom what's the meaning in life is there any real meaning and purpose you know when you say to your to your spouse if you're old enough to be married I I really do love you and I commit myself to you the rest for the rest of my life does that mean anything or is it just a social convention you know what about when we die I know beyond a word of a doubt that someday, somehow, somewhere, I'm going to see Bronwyn Poet again and I'm going to have a kōrero with her. I, don't, I can't explain to you why that is, but I know deep down that that's the case. I just know because, and for me, the Christian faith, for all its, for all its faults and all its doubts and all the difficulties, actually answers more of those fundamental questions about life than any other faith I know, more than Buddhism, more than Hinduism, more than secular humanism. And one of the reasons why, even though I don't understand a lot of things, I'm still a Christian. I became a Christian 1967, 1968, and I still hold on to my Christian faith, and I'm deeply indebted. And I want to read you a passage from C.S. Lewis that I've actually read before. How many of, how many of you have read, your, read the Narnia stories to your children? How many kids... I recommend it, parents. I know they're old, and they were written in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but they're pure gold. The Silver Chair is my favorite book, and those of you who've read The Silver Chair will know that it's about the children go into Narnia, and they go into the underworld searching for Prince Rillian, and there's this horrible green witch down there, and she bewitches them all. She, she plays this magic um, stringed instrument and thrums away, and she cast this magic powder on the fire and, and they all start going to sleep and she convinces them and she says um, she says uh, put away these childish tricks I have work for you in the real world there is no Narnia no overworld no sky no sun no Aslan so now to bed all and let us begin the wiser life tomorrow but first to bed to sleep deep sleep soft pillows sleep without foolish dreams she's trying to convince them that the world they know exists where they come from with the beautiful sun and sky and moon doesn't exist and then excuse me and there's this wonderful creation of Lewis's called Puddleglum who's a marsh wiggle and he fights hard and he puts his he puts his web foot in the fire and Lewis says there's nothing quite like the smell of burnt marsh wiggle to bring one to one's senses and, and, and Puddleglum says this, One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All of you have been saying might be quite right, I shouldn't wonder. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and even Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. 
Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me a pretty poor one. So, so Padelglum says what I say, you know. There may be problems with our Christian faith, but the, what are the alternatives? What are the alternatives to believe in a, in a, in a passionless, meaningless, where, where, we, where we take our values from a, from a, 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 you know, a hodgepodge of, of postmodern bric-a-brac and, and there's no certainty about where we get them from? You know, why do we believe in forgiveness? Why do we believe in looking after the poor? Why do we believe in looking after foreigners and the migrants? Why do we have such a deep-felt um, understanding of, of, of all these things? Because God has communicated it to us in the Bible. And it's there. It may be difficult sometimes for us to understand and because it's written in pre-scientific language, but it's there and it's true. And that's why I'm still a Christian. So that's the second point, second main point. Third and last main point. Great. Can we maintain a real faith, a real vibrant faith without the church? And Aaron speaks to Moses and he said, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell the king of Pharaoh everything I, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. Now, we remember that God was ang angry with Moses for being a bit timid. In actual fact, he wanted to do away with them at one point, as we, we heard Rob remind us of. He was, Moses was timid. He needed Aaron. And ne next slide. The fact is, we need one another. We need each other, one another. We need the church. It's very hard to do faith on its own, on our own. Now, many people are turned off by church. You know, they don't like the way the music's done or the pastor's too, neo, too liberal or, or, you know, I've had a tiff with so-and-so, you know, way back 20 years ago. People, you know, seriously, get over your petty, your petty hassles. Get real. Find a bunch of people that you want to do church with and do it for all your heart. That's what God is calling us to do. You know, that Charles gave us a, um, a wonderful hymn. I was reminded as I was preparing this of another wonderful hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It's Jesus Christ, her Lord. And the second one of the verses goes, Yet with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresy distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes out, up, how long? And, and soon the night of weeping will be the night of song. Sorry. Um, you know, be like that. Be the saints who keep watch over the church. Pray for the church. Be the church. Do the things that God has commanded us to do. Don't, don't tear off into little schisms. And, and If God's called you genuinely to go somewhere else for a good reason, we'll go and we'll you'll go with our blessing as a couple of families did a couple of Sundays ago but don't just walk out the back door and we hear nothing more about you and you're not going to any fellowship anywhere take seriously that we need one another the, the scriptures in Romans 12 say for each of us has one body with many members and, who, and these members do not have, all have the same function 
So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And, and the teachings on the gift are basically the same, yet slightly different in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and 1 Peter. We cannot do church by ourselves. We need one another. So, last, last slide. That doesn't mean that God cannot overcome our self-perceived weaknesses. It's no excuse for us to rush off and say, oh, well, I'm no good. You know, I'll leave it all to that person or that person. Yes, we depend on one another, but don't hide behind others doing nothing. Moses and Aaron needed others of faith. Rob reminded us of the story of the midwives, for example. The reason why the Egyptians and Pharaoh couldn't kill all the Jewish babies is because the midwives hid them. And remember, they told that wonderful um, porky that, to, to Pharaoh that oh, the, the, the Jewish mothers are very active and they give birth much more quickly than the Egyptians, and that's why we can't get there in time. And then the story of Zipporah, who was, who was Moses' foreign wife, and, and God would have killed Moses except for Zipporah's action to circumcise him. So, you know, we all have a part to play. We're one body and many members. Find out what God's asking you to do. He may be taking you outside your comfort zone. He might want you to start up a new ministry of some kind. So, depend on one another. Don't hide behind others and do nothing because Moses and Aaron needed others of faith. So just to quickly revise last slide, what have we learned? We need to constantly review and renew our covenant with Christ. We need to think about what it was that first led us to God. Maybe you need to do that today in, in the quiet of your own heart to renew your, your first love, your, your covenant with, with Christ, with God. All of, secondly, all of the Bible is real. If we believe God put it there for a purpose and we have to read it and ask, well, what, what is he saying? Just as many good preachers before me have said about, about Exodus. And lastly, we can't do it alone. We need church. We need one another. I was reminded of, for some reason, of my military service. And I was called up in 1971. 1971 was a big year. I finished my master's. I um, got engaged. I got a job as a junior lecturer at Victoria University. I got called up and had to do my national military training. And when we arrived in Waiuru, we were a weird, <coughs> a weird bunch of people. And I thought, as I looked at these people, some of whom I would have arguments with, you know, these are the guys that, that our predecessors in the First World War went off to battle with. And they didn't think about the differences of, you know, faith or, or position. They realized they were going to be going, standing side by side with these people, fighting. And they had to depend on one another. Well, that's what we need to be like in the church. You know, I need to stand side by side with Eddie and with all of you. In the, in the front line of what God's calling us to do. We can't do it alone. We need church and we need one another. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us and even though it's sometimes hard to understand, it's precious. And we pray you will quicken it to us each day or each week as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.